Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. We are so excited to welcome another one of our fantastic board members to the podcast. Today, we talk with Dave Hyde on the importance of information, the checkoff, and his experience with the chicken, hog, and dairy industries, and why they fuel his passion for cattle industry change. All right, so Dave, we are so excited to have you here with us on the podcast. So let's get started with a quick introduction. Tell us about yourself, your family, and your operation. I'm from east, the far eastern Ohio, about 10 miles from the Ohio River and about 60 miles due west of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm a first generation producer and probably the last here. And uh, I started with absolutely nothing. I've been married for 41 or 42, let's just say over 40 years. And I have two grown kids and three grandkids. I've semi-retired five years ago after 35 years as a, as a construction electrician, but uh, they seem to be calling me back every week because it's the same situation all across the country. They just can't get people to work. Uh, I do all the farming by myself. I own 200 acres and rent about 200 more. I run about 40 head of um, cows, cow-calf herd. I send all the steers to a feedlot and I retain ownership, but uh, I just got a phone call from the owner and he told me that this was his last year and uh, he's got labor issues. I've been keeping about 50 to 60% of my heifers the last few years, hoping to acquire more pasture ground, but that hasn't worked out too well. Let's see, this part of the state, I make mostly baleage hay because of the uncertain weather we have here, high humidity and, and rain, you know, every two or three days. It saves me time and labor. I grow about 10 acres of corn for silage and fill a bag just in case it's cheap insurance for winter feed. Let's see, up until about two months ago, I was milking on the weekends for a friend who happened to be the, who happens to be the last remaining dairy in the county. And I also help out a couple broiler operations in exchange for the chicken litter for my fields. Very cool. We'll talk more about those operation aspects later. So you are the RCAP Region 8 Director, which represents Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, and West Virginia producers. So tell us what drew you to RCAP and what made you want to get involved. Well, when I was running work, it's about the information that you receive as an electrician because you, there's two things. First of all, you don't want to get anybody hurt. And second of all, you don't want to have to go back and fix something or put something in that you mix. So I was always a fanatic about information. So when I first got the cows, I was looking for cattle information, even though I worked on a dairy farm on and off during the 80s. And I just, so I joined NCBA and the Ohio Cattlemen's Association. Um, one weekend I took a class uh, that the Ohio Cattlemen's had at Ohio State, oh sorry, the Ohio State University. 
and it was entitled B509. It was a great class and program, and it taught us about the beef business, but some of the presentations at the time didn't really seem right to me. The very first statement the executive director of the Cattlemen's Association asked was, are you in the cattle business or the beef business? And that turned a lot of heads in there at that moment. From that point on, it was all about the beef industry. Several of the presenters in the, um, which were all college professors were also leading us into what's best for the beef world. But the statement that uh, disturbed me the most is when they predicted that most of the sale barns will be gone in 10 years and we would only use them for call cows. Electronic IDs with verifiable BQAs would also be the norm. And I'm thinking to myself, this is never gonna fly in my part of the state. A lot of guys here, they don't even have working chutes, corrals, or even a stock trailer, a lot of stuff hired done. But the, the main thing that got me was one morning, I'm on my way to work listening to the farm report and there was uh, going to be a sale barn meeting debate between our CEO, Bill Buller and Colin Woodall, vice president of governor government affairs at the time for NCBA at a sale barn in Zanesville, Ohio, which is about two hours from me. And the next morning on the farm report, they said there was a scheduling conflict and what would be held at a later date. So I just sort of wrote that off, but about two months went by and our County Cattlemen's Association had an updated presentation from the executive director of the Ohio Cattlemen's. And when I had the opportunity, I asked her when they was gonna reschedule the meeting. And I can't believe she told me this, but she told me that the CEO of NCBA called her and said, whatever you do, do not get on the same stage with Bill Bullard. And that got me to thinking, and that's when I started looking into RCAF. And to this day, NCBA refuses to stand on the same same stage and debate the issues or the checkoff. And to me, there's only two reasons you don't publicly defend something you believe in and you're hiding something or they don't want you to know the truth. I immediately dropped out of NCBA and the high cattlemen's and happened to find a talent talented and dedicated group of cattle producers here in the Buckeye State called Buckeye Quality Beef Association, which is an affiliate of our calf. And uh, Right after that, it was a year or so, Carol Wheeler, she was one of our directors at Buckeye Quality Beef and happened to also be the RCAF director at the time and she wanted to retire. And one night I'm sitting here and the phone rings and it says Colorado on it. And I'm thinking that's ah, just NCBA and their solicitors. And I almost didn't answer the phone. And here it was Gerald Triber. And he asked me if I would come on and, and replace her you know, as director. And, and at the time, my mom was sick and I had a lot going on. I told him, you know, I think about it. And but he persisted and called back. And uh, that's how I got hooked up with RCAF. And I'm going to tell you what, I am. Uh, I'm really glad that I did, because there's honestly a lot of talented people, just like you two girls right here. And uh, I got to say hats off to guys like Brett Kenzie and uh, Eric Nelson, because like I said, I'm just a cow calf guy from Eastern Ohio. Those guys are feedlot people and I had no clue how to market cattle and they probably got tired of listening to their phone rings and seeing it was me on the other end. Well, we're happy to have you. We appreciate all that you've done on the board, um, but let's go back. So I know you had said that ranching has not always been your primary source of income. So tell us kind of about your history in the cattle business and what led you to running a cow-calf operation? 
Well, actually, when I was working at the trade, I I also was raising dairy heifer, heifer bucket calves for a neighbor out the road. And then about 20 years ago, I started the herd out with uh, 50% Angus, 50% Holstein heifer bucket calves that I bought from the friend that I was just now milking for. I uh, kept using proven carcass AI Angus genetics or bulls that were registered Angus. And today, other than a little big on the stature, the ribeye and the marbling has been fantastic. But uh, even the best carcass traits, preconditioning program with double vaccination, 60-day weaning, it gets you absolutely nothing here in, in east of the Mississippi. And that's when I started retaining ownership. Uh, you can take the best calves at a sale barn, but if you don't have that BQA certification number, the three buyers there automatically dock you. But I've seen balling calves unvaccinated come through. As long as they had that BQA number, they did okay. And to me, that's just pure manipulation of the market. Yep. So talk to us about the industry in Ohio. A lot of people, I don't think, think Ohio and think agriculture. I know I don't. But so what does the cattle industry and other facets of agriculture look like compared to like South Dakota or Kansas? Really, Ohio is uh, really a diversified state. Uh, the majority is cash grain operations. Um, you have cattle feedlots and backgrounders. They're more into the central to western part of the state. The cow-calf guys are on the eastern part, and we've got some couple big players utilizing the reclaimed strip mine areas uh, around here. They used to um, mine for coal years ago, and, uh, and I, when I mean it, there's like 20,000 acres in a, in a section that they come in and fence off and run cattle on. Um, we got some hogs in Ohio. They're more toward the central and the western part of the state. Now, the poultry and the broilers, they're all over the state. And Ohio happens to be number two in egg production. Um, see, dairies, there's some small dairies around here, not very many left. And uh, the majority of the Amish have actually quit. We had a lot of Amish. And there's a few thousand head operations on the ODA permit list. Um, great production. We have grapes up toward uh, Lake Erie. But one of the fastest things I see growing in my area, believe it or not, is goats. Uh, we have an ethnic market that's up around Cleveland, and there's a heck of a lot of people growing goats here. That's very interesting. So how has the cattle industry changed in Ohio and your area over the last few decades? Um, this is back to acquiring more pasture. In the spring of 2021, I had a buddy of mine call me and ask if I could... Uh, helping catch some cows and calves from a fellow cattleman that passed away and his brother was taking care of them and he had no clue. He was just throwing hay out there, didn't know how many cows there was or anything. There was three different places of cattle. The first farm was less than a quarter mile from my home. It had 150 acres fenced in. It took three weeks to get everything coming to the feed bunks and the corral we built, caught over 60 head, loaded moved them, sold them, went on to the second, third places. It took about a month and a half or so. But during all this time, we were talking to the deceased sister who had one third interest in the operation about leasing the pastures. And my buddy wanted the other farms and I was gonna get the closest one to my place. And we thought, well, we're loading up all these cattle for them. We're sitting pretty good. Next thing we know, we see a big four wheel drive planter 
tractor with a planter and a sprayer moved in and come to find out that the brother leased it uh, before talking to his sister. How has things changed today? Nobody wants to be a cattle farmer here. Everybody wants to be a grain farmer and the fence lines are coming out. The pastures are being ripped up. The only thing that I see increasing for the cattle in my area are the club calf jockeys. The other biggest thing, which I forgot to tell you, has been the oil and gas boom that drove up the land prices. So it's it's kind of hard to go buy anything now when they're drilling all around you and people are leasing up the ground, but it brought new life into a lot of old existing operations. I mean, literally there was a new tractor in Baylor and everybody's barn here a few years ago, but just like everywhere else, these cattle um, growers are getting older and finally they're seeing the opportunity to exit the business without a major loss. That's about the changes we've had here. Dave, you bring such an interesting perspective to our RCAF board being from Ohio, being from, um, you know, where you are and you're surrounded by these poultry and hog operations and you've, you know, clearly seen the, the boom. You, you talked about, um, you know, Ohio being a real presence, a real force in the egg production industry. So tell us, how does watching the, the evolution of the poultry and the hog industry, how has that shaped your perspective of the big picture of what's going on in the cattle industry? I've got about five or six years helping the poultry operations here and they're broiler right now, just broiler operations. And let me just say, I'm glad I never built those barns. I help a couple operations just for the chicken litter for the fertilizer. But what I've seen in the last five year, it probably irritates me more than the owners of those barns. Yes, they're making decent money, but the contract has been changed by the integrator several times where the owners have Let's see, they lost the delivery of a flock, one flock per year, which that amounts to a, quite a bit of money. And they were required to purchase different equipment to comply with the new contract. And it was all in the way that they was handling the manure in the, in the buildings. On top of that, the pay is based on a competition system, which I still haven't figured out yet. You have no control over the genetics of the birds what plant the birds come from or the feed and in my mind you're just an employee of the company after the last several changes that this company has made there uh, there were several broiler operations that said to heck with it and uh, they cut their contract with that and they're now leg air leg egg layer operations and i have no idea what's going on there because with this uh, bird flu going on everything is a lockdown on the egg layers right now so you just painted a pretty good picture of what um you know the independence that you will sacrifice basically going the way of vertical integration and that's really helped shape your perspective as to why you fight so hard against vertically integrating the cattle industry correct that is correct, yes. So Dave, what would you say is your real hot button issue in the cattle industry that you're fighting for? Hmm. My biggest thing that, my hot button issue is mandatory country of origin labeling. 
the 5014, but I guess I've been the redheaded stepchild of the bunch and I'm, I'm getting sick and tired of the lies and the misinformation that that's being put out there against us and everybody else. And just as an example, last week's Supreme Court decision not to hear our case regarding the checkoff and the manipulated checkoff funded ag press on the coverage. I watched several of the ag news shows this weekend and the ones not manipulated by the NCBA did a fine job of reporting. They told how USDA came in and wrote the memorandums of understanding for the state beef councils to follow. They told how cattlemen can opt out of the state checkoff deductions, and they told how the courts granted a monetary settlement for our court costs. What I hear from others was Colin Woodall using the same material he's used for the last five years, trying to link us with HSUS and destroying the checkoff. The truth is we used a legal firm that that was once used by the HSUS. And here's an example that a lot of people don't understand. Let's just say Mr. Smith gets a DUI and he goes to ABC Legal Services for representation. I come in six months later and I need a, oh, I need work on a, my will. Does that, since I'm using ABC Legal Services, does that make me a drunk? And that's how, Woodall is trying to connect RCAF with the HSUS. The real truth is the NCBA with our checkoff dollars belongs to a group known as the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, which is basically run by the WWF, who has Jason Clay, let me eliminate animal agriculture on the board. If you want to hear the real story, go to the website, because we have a YouTube video that Tracy Hunt has presented at our convention, and it is great. I also heard testimony from an NCBA member that they ran a program last year to bolster the percent uh, negotiated cash trade. And according to him, it was a success. Seems to me it was reported that several of those so-called triggers, three if I remember correctly, were pulled when the negotiated cash trade didn't meet the target which was placed at a very low percentage, by the way. And about a month ago, I believe it was the Texas Farm Bureau that came out against the compromise bill, but false statements that caught my attention was it would eliminate all the AMAs. And that was not a true statement. It seems more and more of these reportings are basically a copy and paste statement without any verification and nobody ever questions it anymore. And, and that really burns me up more than a lot of other things, I guess. You have been very vocal about your disappointment with the beef checkoff program. Tell us about your concerns with the beef checkoff program. Hmm, where do I start? Okay, let's name another industry that pays the marketing and advertising for another industry while the administrator reaps all the benefits. This all goes back to the question I was asked in the B509 class, are you in the cattle business or the beef business? In 1985, the year the checkoff was put in place, consumption was at 80 pounds per person. Today, we're at 57.8 pounds, I believe. And according to Cattle Facts, it's going down to 56 pounds by 2024. The percent of the beef dollar that the farmer received used to be 54%. This year, it's 34%. Imports from 
Brazil in January of this year totaled over 100 million pounds, a 500% increase over the same time last year. They also met their tariff rate quotas in March and now pay 26.4% tariff on additional imports, which, by the way, hasn't slowed them down yet. We've lost over 85,000 farmer feeders and 25% of our local sale barns. And this is one that gets me, the cow-calf guy from Eastern Ohio here. There are between 12 and 18,000 feeder cattle crossing the border from Mexico every week. In 2010, there was a full audit of the checkoff, 12,200 pages, blacked out and redacted of the investigation. USDA has not and will not release stating, we are concerned that unwanted embarrassment could result from the USDA and the checkoff funds are vulnerable to the misuse. Uh, you know, and last week, Colin Woodall called our suit an attack on the checkoff. Cattlemen in this country look at it as a rescue attempt. Secretary Vilsack, he's been a real disappointment when it comes to the checkoff. He served as Secretary of Agriculture under the Obama administration for eight years and the last two years under Biden administration. With a stroke of a pen, he could have the referendum and the checkoff settled once and for all. But it's my guess that Polls have already been conducted and they have a pretty good idea how it's going to come out. My question is, who has the checkoff benefited, the cattlemen or the beef industry? And Woodall and the NCBA and the Beef Board will not get up and answer any of these questions publicly. And that's my big beef with the whole thing. So, Dave, do you, I mean, do you have some reform ideas for the beef checkoff system? What would you like to see happen? Hmm. Let's see. First of all, I think it should go to a third party that has no affiliation with any cattle organizations. Um, I think that the cattle organizations could have people on the board, but it needs it's a program that's paid for by cattlemen. It should benefit cattlemen not the beef industry. Um, this is way above my pay grade, so I'd have to leave that, the rest of that to somebody else. <laughs> That's fine. Um, okay, D Dave, let's switch gears a little bit. And we're seeing renewed interest from the USDA to implement a mandatory RFID system in the cattle industry. If we don't fight back and that goes through, how will mandatory RFID systems affect cattle producers in your area? Uh, that's <laughs> the short answer is they'd be out of business. They're not going to comply with it. Like I said before, there's a lot of people that don't even have a corral, a chute, and you tell them they're going to have to spend money on ear tags. It just, it's not going to happen here. They're just going to go out of business. Okay, Dave, we're seeing a menu of different legislative reforms being offered. Which ones are meaningful and on your radar and which ones are just fluff and make those lawmakers and lobbying groups feel good? Uh, that's a pretty simple question there. 5014 and MCOOL. Um, I think those two right there, it would uh, be the biggest shot in the arm for the cattle industry. The compromise bill, there's a lot of things wrong with it. It takes way too long to implement. And the biggest thing that I seen about it was the fines are a joke. Uh, I thought at first that they was doing the 
percent negotiated trade on a weekly basis, but now as I read it, I think they're on a quarterly. I didn't see anything discouraging them from just saying the heck with it and paying the fine. I mean, it would like be business as usual for them. I think instead of a monetary fine, the fine should have been uh, an increase in the negotiated cash trade. So in other words, if they didn't meet their quota, it automatically increases 10%. That would give them more of an incentive to buy negotiated cash than paying a fine. And then the biggest thing on that, I don't know if anybody saw, but after last week's decision by the Supreme Court on the EPA regulations for air quality and basically saying that uh, that was Congress's job, it makes me wonder if letting USDA implement the percent negotiated cash trade wouldn't also be challenged by groups that didn't like the levels that they were set at. That's why I think 5014, we put it in there. It's 50%, 14 days. It's enacted by Congress, all said and done. Great points. So if we don't achieve some aggressive reform measures, like you're talking 5014 and MCOOL, what is the future of this cattle industry? Mm. Well, I can see it right now. We was talking to dairy a little bit ago, and the bigger thousand cow dairy there's 1100 cow dairy close to me and this guy is already breeding let's just say angus bulls to his bottom tail enders and they're expanding the dairy but he's also looking for independent people to raise the heifers and take over and buy the calves or raise the calves up for him and just things like that i don't know if you call that horizontal or vertically integrate it but i can see more and more of that happening you know every day and it just it, it to me it's going to come down do you want to be an independent producer or a laborer for a corporation who makes the decision for you just like the chicken and the hog industry and unfortunately there's a lot of people that will they're willing to work for the corporations yeah, I think that's a that's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out with who decides to stand up and remain independent or who's okay with having somebody else be their boss and tell them what to do on their operation. Um, so what drives you to keep fighting for the cattle industry? I mean, like you said, you're a first generation, you're probably going to be a last generation. So what's your stake in this? Like what keeps you fighting for this industry? <sighs> Around here, it's the lack of producers stepping up and help us fight this fight. And I don't think it's just here. I think it's all across the country. But it seems instead of things getting simpler and more efficient, it appears that uh, most of us don't have the time anymore. And the list never gets any shorter. There's a lot of great people out there fighting for the cattle industry. And, and to be honest, I've had the pleasure and opportunity to meet a lot of them. Don't take anything for granted. A lot of these other organizations supposedly fighting for you have people, they're just looking for another paragraph on their resume and, you know, they move on. Younger guys coming up, if you don't like what's going on, you, you need to be vocal and active. If it, it's, it's just like our M Cool campaign, writing a letter 
to the editor explaining how the beef is coming into this country, being unpackaged, repackaged, and a USDA label on it. I've wrote several columns, and what's really got me is I have neighbors calling me, and they said, man, I never knew this was going on, and I was even at the co-op one day, and one guy come up to me, and I had no idea who he was. He said, man, that was a great article you had in the paper. Thanks for doing that, and you know, you may think it falls on deaf ears, but there, there's people out there reading these and, and, and getting them. And a couple well, weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, I had a letter in there that actually fired back at my congressman in this district because in 2015, he voted to repeal mandatory country of origin labeling. And he's a big, I'm for the independent business owner in this district. I'm for the working family. And I just politely in the article said, how can you be for the independent people when you took this away from the independent cattle producers? And and guess what? I just got a letter from him and he says, thanks for the information. We will keep this on the top of our list. If you have anything else, get back with me. But again, if somebody doesn't like something, you know, make a few phone calls, reach out to people like me or anybody that's on our board. We'd be glad to help you in, in any way possible. Yes. Okay. So you have anything else to add before we jump off here in a minute? No. Um, like I said, uh, we need new blood in the game. We need people to get back in and get some of these things uh, passed to help the cattlemen in this country. Uh, that's yeah. about all I get. Yeah, but okay. So we always ask this at the end of the podcast. What is your favorite cut of beef and how do you prepare it? You're going to think I'm goofy, but you know, I love a ribeye and a T-bone just like everybody else, but I'm just a simple person. <laughs> I like my hamburgers. <laughs> hey, that's that's one of my favorite meals is a good hamburger. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, around here with the baseball games with the grandchildren and stuff, they're easier to fix. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, anything else, Dave, before we stop recording? No, no. Like I said, if anybody's got any questions and they're in my district or whatever, please reach out to me. Uh, you know, I'd be glad to talk to you. Thank you so much, Dave, for joining us. I love hearing Dave's perspective on things, and it was so great getting to chat with him. You don't have to have a thousand head or be from one of the big cattle states to have a say or make a difference. One cow or 1,000, you have a voice in our industry, so don't be afraid to use it. For more information regarding all the things talked about in this episode, please visit our website or reach out to us on social media. If you liked our episode today, make sure to like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'd love for you to leave us a review. Stay involved and engaged in the conversation by connecting with us on social media at RCAPUSA on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAPUSA Roundup. To learn more about RCAF USA, visit our website, www.r-cafusa.com.